So I invite you to stand with me now as we consider Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us to get our minds in the context. And we stand because we believe this is the word of God and we would like to honor it now in this moment. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded eight Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to def- not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he say where... It, uh, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were uh, of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the stewards with the chief eunuchs uh, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test yourselves for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food, be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And, and as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore, They stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to come now into a new series together that we would be able to explore the book of Daniel and to see, God, how you are speaking still today through this text. Would you open our eyes to what it means to live as faithful 
exiles because that is who we are. And there is so much that we can learn from these young men, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This entire series is entitled Faith in Exile, and often the first sermon in my series in a new book is, shares the same title, and this one does. And that is our theme this morning. It is the subject that we are looking at. What does it mean to live as a faithful exile? I believe that is the theme of the entire book of Daniel, whether we're talking about the narrative texts that take place in the life of Daniel or his three friends, or in the second half of the book, the prophecies of Daniel, which are intended to give courage and encouragement to exiled peoples. This is a book about what does it mean to live faithfully in a foreign land. And here's what I believe every Christian, not today, but throughout all of Christian time, need to recognize. While we may still live in the land of our birth, for many of us, maybe even in the city of your birth, if you are in Christ today, you are an exile. This is not your home. We have already sang about that truth during our time of corporate worship this morning. And this is what we need to approach this book with as our understanding. In reality, while we may not live far from home, we live far from our spiritual home. And we are in exile. So let's view first the reality of exile here in Daniel. We're told first that Jerusalem, we're given the setting of what is happening here and some timeline, and this is important to us to understand when this is taking place in God's redemptive story. And this takes place at the besiegement of Jerusalem when some young people are taken away out of Jerusalem, brought to Babylon. Babylon at this point would have been the... the the ruler of the known world, this part of the world. Babylon would have been the greatest empire in that day and they have come and besieged Jerusalem, not yet conquered it, that would happen later, but would besiege it to the point that they are able to exile some of the best of Judah. So look, in verse one, in the third year of the reign of, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we have two kings that are mentioned here that are going to give us a timeline of when this is happening. Jehoiakim was the third from last king of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been conquered by the Assyrians. Judah, the southern kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital, still holding strong. Jehoiakim um, was, the, was the son, even though he wasn't the direct, uh, next direct king from Josiah. He was the second son of Josiah. His brother had only reigned for about three months. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years. His father, Josiah, was the last good king in Israel. He was the one who restored uh, the sacrificial system. He restored the law. He removed pagan worship from the temple. He had done everything in his 
power then to restore right worship in Israel. His son, Jehoiakim, takes over, and he takes after his grandfather and many of the other predecessor kings, and he does evil in the sight of the Lord, we are told. And here, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to make him his vassal, and he besieges Jerusalem in an attempt to show his power and might over that kingdom. And he does so. And we're told this, there's two different books of history that help us from Jewish writing in the scriptures that help us to piece together what is going on here. One is the book of 2 Kings, the other is the book of 2 Chronicles, which really, if you're wondering, wait, 2, 1 and 2 Kings in the Hebrew Bible is really just one text, right? They're in two parts, the same with 1 and 2 Chronicles. So at the very end of the history of the kings and the chronicles of the nations, do we see what happens here surrounding this text that gives us an idea of what is going on. This is all happening right around 605 BC. So just in general terms, this is about 600 years before what we see take place in the New Testament. So there's only about 200 years left of Old Testament history and things that are going to happen. Just a few books of the Bible take place after Daniel. So if we look over in 2 Kings 24, we're gonna get a little better of a description of what's happening here in Daniel chapter one, verse one. It says this, in his day, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. So Jehoiakim here, the second son of Josiah, grandson of Manasseh, becomes this servant vassal king to Nebuchadnezzar here in about 605 B.C. The question that we have to ask though is why? And here's why this question is important because Daniel, the book of Daniel and these stories that may be familiar to you about a fiery furnace or a, a young man sleeping overnight in a lion's den, these things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen as a part of a story that God is crafting from the very beginning of time that God is working to redeem a people for his glory. And Daniel and the other exiles that are taken out of Jerusalem to Babylon are a part of that story. So if we go back a generation, we see in that story a king named Manasseh. This would have been, um, this, this would have been Jehoiakim's grandfather. And of all of the evil kings that ruled in Jerusalem, he was the worst. Now, there were some kings in Jerusalem that ruled that did terrible things, but none of them quite to the level of Manasseh. And what's mentioned here in 2 Kings 24, when it talks about the shedding of innocent blood, it is because this king, this wicked king there in Jerusalem, embraced child sacrifice for the worship of a false god to the point where even two of his sons were burned alive in worship of a false god. 
This is the context of, of what has preceded this event. And we're told in the scripture that the Lord's anger, his wrath has burned against Judah for embracing these false practices. And while his son, Josiah, is, removed some of these practices, God had already pronounced through his prophets, we're told, his judgment against Judah, that Judah would, in time, fall. There's two things that are, ta- that, that are mentioned here, two different places in 2 Kings 24 that show us something that's very important. In verse 2, we're told that the Lord sent bands of the Chaldeans, Syrians, Moabites, Ammonites. So the Lord is the one who just sent army after army against Judah. Then in verse 3, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. Here's what's important for us as we place Daniel in the context of redemptive history. This is not a happenstance occurrence. It's not that this king in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, ended up being the greatest king of, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the greatest king of Babylon. It was kind of the height of that empire in that moment, right? So the, the largest and most powerful Babylon would be. And it didn't just so happen to be that now would be the time that they would be able to conquer Judah. No, this is at the hand of the Lord. From Daniel 1.1 on, we need, we must, to understand this book rightly, we must see God at work. Don't make Daniel the main character in this text. Don't make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the main character in the next text. The, the, the primary actor all along in this story is God himself to the point that he is the one who is bringing these armies against his people. He is the one that is orchestrating this in such a way that his people would be exiled in Babylon for this moment and others like it over the course of the next century or so where God would show his faithfulness to his people even during their exile. Let's look at verses two and three. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands and with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility. Then you skip to verse 6, and it tells you who some of these people are. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. These young men, part of the first exiles out of Judah, the rest of Judah would be exiled, would be, the rest of Judah would be completely conquered at the fall of Jerusalem 18 years later, and everyone taken out. But these first uh, Several thousand, probably around 3,000 that were taken out of Jerusalem here in this initial exile represent all of Judah who would eventually go into exile. This is just the first wave of exiles of God's people going to live in the land of Babylon. Second Chronicles chapter 36 gives us additional information about this event. Jehoiakim, when he was 25 years old, when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. So what we see both in Second Chronicles and in the Daniel account is 
not only are people taken, but artifacts from the temple that had been restored by Josiah are also stripped out of the temple and taken by Nebuchadnezzar, both to his house of false worship and to his palace. That this truly is the beginning of the end for Judah. And Daniel and, their, and his friends find themselves in a strange and hostile land as a part of God's plan for their lives and his plan for redemptive history. God is the one at work here in Daniel 1. God is the one at work in the life of his people as he calls them to account for their sin and disobedience to him. And Daniel and these other Young people from Jerusalem are merely the beginning of this process. And so they make it to Babylon. And Babylon begins what I call a transformation plan. This is what a foreign land will always seek to do, particularly over the young people that they take captive. They're going to try to change everything about them. In truth, they're going to try to see, we're going to see in this text, three things that they try to change about them. Let's look at verses four, five, and seven. Of the people that were taken out, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the first thing that, that we see is that he took what? Young people. And not just young people, but fairly well off, right? Without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom. These were already educated people. These were bright, the best of the best of Jerusalem. That's who's taken. Daniel and his friends are amongst this group. That that's who's taken. But notice the first thing that they try to do to them at the end of verse four. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So the first part of the transformation plan is re-education. The Babylonians believed that they had it all figured out and that the best way for them to get these young men to not be Israelites anymore, but to be Babylonians would be to re-educate them. And so this is what they do. They begin to teach them their ways. They begin to teach them their language. They begin to teach them their literature. That this is an attempt by the captor to transform these young men into their own image. This is, this is what the world does. The world wants to take people who are not like them and this is what Babylon, Babylon represents here, okay? In this text, Babylon represents the world in which the people of God are exiled. And what is it that the world wants to do? It wants to take people who are not like them and make them like them. This is, a, I mean, it's what you see in the text. Let's teach you not to speak your language. Let's teach you to speak our language, Let's teach you not to read your history. Let's teach you to read our history. Let's teach you not to appreciate your culture, but let's teach you to appreciate our culture. This is what the world is doing. It's what Babylon was doing then. The second is found in verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So the second part of the Babylonian transformation plan is cultural integration. 
It's cultural integration. It's not enough to transform the minds. Now we have to start transforming the actions. And what's the action that's being transformed here? What you eat. Now, what is it that made Israelites stand out from the surrounding nations? There were a few things, but among them was their dietary practices, right? Israelites had specific dietary practices. That becomes important later in the book. And you'll notice what they are trying to do as it relates to this cultural integration. We want you to start eating like us. We want you to start drinking like us. We want you to do this. And we're going to do this for three years. Three years seemed like a long enough time to be able to do this this cultural integration and this re-education that now you're going to think like us. Not only are you going to think like us, but you're going to act like us. And because you think and act like us, we can trust you to be like us. This is the worldly pressure coming from Babylon upon these Israelites who have been taken into captivity there in Babylon. But there's a third thing they, they seek to do, and that's identity modification. Look at verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You might say, well, is that really a big deal? Is it really a big deal that they gave them, that they gave them new names? You know, that's actually fairly common. Any of you that went to West Africa with us, uh, the tribes in West Africa, the people that we were sharing the gospel with and our partners there, probably gave you another, an African name. I've had an African name for a really long time for my very first trip over to Africa. Um, it's Abubakar. Don't go around and call, but that's my name in Africa. And there's people in West Africa that if they were to see me, that's what they would know me as because that's, they gave me a name that was familiar to them. Is that what's happening here? Are the Babylonians just giving familiar names to the people in uh, to these Israelite exiles? No, there's probably something a little more to it. If we look at what their Israelite name means, their Hebrew name, and we look at what their Babylonian name means, we're going to see there's some direct contradictions. There's some intentional influence that's happening, some identity modification. Let's look at Daniel first. Daniel, that name, means God is my judge. So Daniel's parents, who we know nothing about, we don't know if Daniel's parents are alive here at this point. We know probably Daniel's a teenager at this point. We're not sure if his parents are alive, but they were at least faithful enough, having been adults under the reign of Josiah, where there was a revival within the land, they were faithful enough to give Daniel a name that honored God. God is my judge. They change his name to Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of the false gods in Babylon, which was, were, had a plural god you know, society. There were, there were multiple gods there in Babylon, false gods in Babylon. And so they take his name from being God is my judge to may this false god protect his life. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. They change his name to Shadrach, which means Aku, which is another false god, is exalted. Mishael means is a question. Who is what God is? That's what the word Mishael means. It's a question. Who is like God? Right? That's a great question because there's nobody like God. Well, they change his name and you notice his name's really close, right? It goes from Mishael to Meshach and we're like, well, that's really similar. And it's because it's the same question, just replacing the Lord, replacing God with Aku. Who is what Aku is? Azariah means the Lord is my helper. Abednego means the servant of Nebo, another one of the false gods of Babylon. 
So even down to their identity, this isn't just about giving them familiar names of land. This is about taking the very core of their identity away from them. Now listen, I want to be abundantly clear on something. This is not a sermon about a very specific moment in time. I truly believe this. I could have preached this sermon I could today preach this sermon in any culture around our globe. I could have preached this sermon at any point in American history. I could have preached this sermon anywhere at any point throughout all of Christian history and I would have preached it the same. So don't think about this as a moment of the pastor standing up here just railing against culture. It's not what this is. However, we must recognize that worldly culture will always, always, even when you were a kid and you thought everything was great, always seek to change you away from what God wants you to be. Culture will always do that. Now, it may be, it may, there may be an undercurrent of it. It may not be as in our face as this is, and it may not be as in our face then or in other places in our world as it is right now. And it, by the way, it's not as in our face right now for us as it is for some Christians in other parts of the world. The visibility of this influence changes between one culture and the next and one time and the next. But know this, the world does not like that exiles live as exiles in their land. And their goal is to change everything about who we are. And that's what's happening here. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, this Babylonian culture is pressing hard in on them to think differently, to act differently, and to identify differently. They are, as we are, in exile. So the rest of this chapter then speaks about how we can live faithfully while in exile. The first thing that we'll notice here in this new section is that Daniel, right away, after we're told of this kind of transformation plan of Babylon, Daniel right away makes a stand for holiness. He demonstrates a desire to remain holy, to remain as God has instructed him to be, even though he's no longer living in Judah. He's now living in Babylon. Look at verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Twice we see that word defile there. That word defile is the exact opposite of holy. It's, it's the thing that will make you unholy. And so it's repeated twice to us to ensure that we, the readers, understand that the object here of Daniel's desire is holiness. Now, even though his, uh, his desire is holiness, there's a specific subject matter at hand. And what's the subject matter? It's not the re-education. It's not even the new name, by the way. The, the subject matter is the food. Why? Because some meat, either in its preparation, the way that it's served, or even the content, would have been what we would now call non-kosher. It would have been against Israelite dietary habits as given by God in the Old Testament law. Also, and I think probably even more important than that, 
it would have all, all, because of what we know about the Babylonian culture, every piece of that meat would have been sacrificed to an idol. Every bit of it would have been sacrificed to, to an idol. So this is a double whammy for Daniel. First, they're very likely being, being asked to eat some meat that would have gone against their dietary laws. Second, it would have been, it would have been sacri- meat sacrificed to idols, which, which was definitely against the Old Testament law. So here they stand with a choice to make. They have to make a choice. Do we live differently? Even though we've been through this re-education, even though they've renamed us, even though they're asking us to live as Babylonians, not as Israelites, what do we do? They're, They're faced with this choice. Do we live as holy as God intended us or do we defile ourselves because that's the pressure that the world, Babylon, is giving to us? Now notice this. Holiness is going to come with a cost. It's going to come with a cost. It's going to come with a cost here in this chapter. It's going to come with a cost in later chapters. And holiness comes with a cost today, my friends. To live as God desires for us, his children, to live in a world in exile will cost us something. I think it's why a lot of Christians don't really desire to live holy lives. Because we've counted the costs, what Jesus said, right? Before a man goes and builds a building, he counts the cost, right? Many have counted the cost and they look at what it's gonna cost them in the world and they think, I just don't wanna pay that cost. Maybe Daniel and his friends, maybe they're sitting around thinking, do, do, do we really wanna take this stand? We just got here. It's the most powerful empire in the world. This is the most powerful king to ever rule in the most powerful empire in the world. What in the world are we about to do here? And yet they still do it because The choice to live differently while in exile is always worth the cost. We'll see them make the same choice over and over again, particularly in some of those stories that are very familiar to you. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they end up in the text going by their Babylonian names. They refuse to bow down to a golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter three, when confronted with this, look at what they say. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So there in that familiar story that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego making the choice for holiness when it could cost them their lives. Daniel does the same thing in Daniel chapter six. When a later king commands that no one would pray to their God, make petitions to their God, to make petitions to anyone outside of that king for 30 days. This was a trap that some other people had laid for Daniel. And Daniel goes, opens his windows in his room and prays publicly And he's called to account for it. And Daniel says, Daniel says in verse 12, oh king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition? No, this is his accusers. They said, did you not make, uh, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the dens of the lions? And Daniel, knowing this, in high position there, still in Babylon, is willing to go into that place for the sake of personal holiness. So all of these narratives in Daniel are defined by what does it mean to be 
faithful to what God is said to do while living in a foreign land. And it's applicable because the people of God have always lived in foreign lands. But notice, it's not just about the actions of these men. The Lord, the primary actor, he's at work in this first chapter of Daniel shows us his work. It shows us his favor first. Look at the favor of the Lord that we see in verses nine through 16. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So immediately, the immediate response to I need to live holy is not what Daniel does. It's not even what the chief of the eunuchs does. The immediate response to I need to live holy is what God does. God gave Daniel favor. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned you the food and, and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were your own age so that you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the stewards whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food and observe by you and deal with the servants according to what you see. So he listened to them and in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I find this an interesting text to preach right here at the beginning of January. Chapter one, and make this about some kind of fad diet. Man, we have done a great disservice to what God is saying here, okay? This, this, is, this, this could not be more far and away removed from a dietary instruction for the followers of God. That's not what this is about. This is Daniel saying, I'm going to be holy. And we're told God shows favor to Daniel and gives him at least the ability to say, test us for 10 days. And then what does God do? God makes them look better than everyone else. Now, people have wanted to argue over whether that was about the diet and about the, whether this means that vegetables are better for you than meat and wine. Look, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that God is at work. And that because these young men have said, God, we want to be faithful to you while in exile, God shows his favor to them. And it's transformative favor that God begins to do this work in their lives because of their obedience. And it ends up affecting everyone else. Could you imagine being in that other group and you're like, man, we were eating pretty good for 10 days and now we're eating vegetables and drinking water. But again, that's not the point of the text either. God here is doing this work, showing his favor to these young men ripped from their homes and taken to Babylon in exile, but still willing to say, I want to be faithful to you. And the Lord places these faithful exiles in positions of influence. Look at the rest of the chapter. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel and understanding and all vision and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. All right. 
So not only does God give favor to these young men here in this one moment, God ends up taking them then because of what he is doing through that personal holiness and placing them in positions of influence that are going to last for the better part, for Daniel at least, for the better part of seven decades. That's how long Daniel stays in a position of influence. For almost 70 years, he is able to influence multiple kings spanning multiple empires. Very rarely does one advisor make it from one empire to the other, but Daniel does in the midst of this, in the midst of this story here in the book. Why? Because God had placed him there. God had placed him there. And because God had placed him there, there is no lion on this earth that could remove him from there until God was ready to remove him from there. And this is what God does in our lives in exile. That is, we live in an exiled world, obedient to God. He gives us the ability to be influential in the lives of those around us for the sake of the gospel. This isn't about power and position. If you'll remember back when we were preaching in Genesis, I stressed that when Joseph went from the pit to the palace, right? It wasn't about position. It wasn't about power. It was about God doing something. So this isn't about how much influence you have. Know this. If you are living a life that is different of that, of our world, there are people that are watching. It may be nobody other than your grandchildren, but they're watching you. It may be a couple of guys at work, but they're watching you. It may be a lot of people. Depends on what God has, where God has placed you. But I can promise you this. If you are living as an exile in this world, faithful to God, people are watching and you have influence. Use that influence for the sake of the gospel. That is what Daniel and his friends do. They use their influence to embrace what God is doing in the darkest time of the Old Testament people, at least since slavery in Egypt. This is the darkest moment. And Daniel and, these, and his friends remained faithful to God to do what he would have them to do. And God places them where he would have them so that they can influence the course of redemptive history. Daniel will eventually tell us of the coming of Jesus himself because he was faithful to be obedient to God while in exile. So what? Followers of Christ are called and empowered to live as obedient exiles in this present life. I don't think it's an option for us to live as exiles. I believe Christians will live as exiles. We will be different from our culture. And it, that's not saying anything about our culture. It's saying about everything about the world's culture for all time. Christians will be different because the world will always want us to do things their way, to think their way, to to, to act their way, to even identify their way. And it is, in, uh, it is uh, incumbent upon Christians to say, I am going to do, no matter the cost, what God wants me to do. Because God is the one who empowers us through Jesus to do it. Think about how Peter writes about this subject in 1 Peter. He introduces his first letter to uh, a group of people in Asia Minor who are definitely at odds with their culture. And he calls them, he says in verse one, to those who are elect 
exiles of the dispersion. He says, you are the elect. You're the people of God. That's what elect means. You're the elect people of God who are exiles, people who had probably never been more than about 15 or 20 miles from their home in their entire lives. And yet he calls them exiles. To the elect exiles, the people of God living in exile. And then later in that first chapter, he gives them this instruction, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as, who, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. By the way, Daniel, living in Babylon, probably in his mind, is thinking about the command of the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. And Peter, leaning on that Old Testament command, makes it a New Testament command and says, even though you are now something different in the land of your birth, don't go back to what you used to be. Be holy. Not for the sake of holiness, but because God, who is holy, has called you to it. Then the passage of scripture that Pastor Steve read for us during our time of worship in Philippians chapter three. Paul makes this appeal, the same appeal, but he's making this appeal to the empowerment side. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So these are people who, who, who dabbled with Christianity, who thought maybe Christianity had an appeal, but the world won out. And here's what he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Daniel, I just want to close with this. Daniel is a book about young people, at least at the beginning, it's a book about young people. So let me talk to our young people for a minute. I spent a lot of time around teenagers, middle schoolers and high schoolers, because that's what I did in ministry for 17 years. And I know it's difficult. Our culture right now does not make it easy on you. Hopefully your parents are trying to instill within you not only Christian values and morals, but they are doing so in a gospel-centered way where they are calling you to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And you look at the world around you you look at maybe even what your friends are doing. You will look at what's happening in our culture and, and the draws and the pulls and the expectations. And you see how those things are just really at odds. And maybe you're here saying, I don't know that I can do this. I, I don't know that I can be the kind of person that I know the Bible wants me to be. Not just that my parents want me to be, but I know that God wants me to be through the revelation of his word. You may say, I just don't know if I can do it. Daniel and his friends were likely 15, 16 years old at the time that they were taken into exile, shoved into a culture that was completely and utterly foreign to them. And on multiple occasions, the threat of their life, they did what God wanted them to do. Now here's the good news. It's the end of verse 21. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You're right, young person, or even adult. You can't on your own live different from this world. But the power of Jesus working in you, he can do it through
So we are without excuse, Christian. We are without excuse, young and old. The world is going to seek to influence us to be like them. And we should follow the the example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and so many others who in moments of pressure relied on the power of God to stand for faithful living, even in exile. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you've placed us, your children, in exile, that we might live as obedient sons and daughters of the high king of the universe. Help us to do so because we feel the pressure. Help us to do so because our flesh is weak. Help us to do so because our sin nature so often wants us to give in. But by the power of Jesus, you make us able to live new lives as faithful exiles. Would that be the mark of our church? Faith, no matter the consequences. We ask in Christ's name, amen.